Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. As we continue in our series on reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, I'm joined today by my friend and spiritual director, Ellen Hoffman, to talk about the intersection of white supremacy and spiritual formation. Many of us, as we've been exploring what it means to reclaim our theology, have found basic spiritual formation things like prayer or believing in God or anything like that to be really challenging, and that's so fair. So as you listen, be gentle with yourself. We're all figuring out along the way, and at the end of the day, that's the invitation that there is. Also, Ellen gives a really good invitation at the very end to those of us that are having a hard time deconstructing and reconstructing, or those of us who are having a regular time but don't really know where spiritual formation fits in. So please listen all the way to the end for that word of, I'm going to use a Christian word, exhortation. This is also just a brief reminder that if you're looking for a Lent devotional, we have one for sale up at reclaimingmytheology.com shop. It has embodiments, practices, engagement with the earth, acts of solidarity, and all kinds of things like that to help do the very thing that we're talking about with my friend Ellen in this conversation about spiritual formation. Okay. All right. <laughs> We are here. We're here. We good to go, or at least goodish. We'll see what we can do yes. moving on from here. But Ellen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to talk to me. I really, really appreciate it. So excited to be here. Well, Ellen, you are a well-known person in my spheres, but for folks that don't know you, as I always ask, I'd love for you to describe what does it mean to be you? I love that question, and I can't believe how hard it is to answer, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. So I am daughter to Chinese immigrant parents. You may not know that I'm Chinese American. If you just looked at my name, Ellen Hoffman, you would like think I'm an older German woman, but that is because I am married to Phil Hoffman. I am mother to 14-year-old Caleb who has Down syndrome and autism, so a dual diagnosis. Um, Also to 12-year-old Amira, who's typically developing. And I'm an adoptive mother to our five-year-old named Promise. So those are just some of the, I think, important relationships in my life that have and are forming my story of becoming me and are have deeply shaped my worldview and God. Hmm. That's good. I love that you refer to, when I ask who, what it means to be you, you refer to the relationships in your life. And that tells me something about who you are that feels really significant, that it's not just an inherent thing that you pull out of yourself, but it's something that is formed in community with other people, you know, under the age of 14 and alongside your partner. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You're also a person who does things. And so I would love for you to describe your sense of vocation. What do you do with your time? Yeah, so I love participating in people's growth. So I love seeing God meet with people and help them become and fulfill like what they're meant to bring to the world. And I know that that's super broad because obviously people do that in a lot of ways. Uh, people preach and they teach and they train and I have done all those things but I think for me specifically what I love is creating and holding space whether that's groups or one-on-one where people can be really transparent be honest and meet God in that most authentic space Mm. and I think connected to that for me is creating that space for marginalized people so seeing the marginalized meet God and watch God restore you know, what's been taken or maybe never given and seeing them really empowered by God. Mm. That is so good. I feel like, as you say, that's a really broad thing, but that you do in a really specific context. Can you talk a little bit about the specific context that you practice that vocational call in? Yeah. So right now, my vocation is being lived out as a spiritual director, where I walk alongside individuals in their God experiences or God questions and discern what that means for their lives. And I love it. It's literally like having a front row seat to witnessing God meet with people and work in their lives on a regular basis. It's, I don't know, it's like magic to me. It's amazing. This is not a question that I expected to really ask you, but I'm curious if you have any ways that you are aware that spiritual direction has formed you as you are helping people be formed by God and kind of forming, helping form others. I have been in spiritual direction for myself, um, gosh, since my early 20s. So I think like 23 years now. And I think that it has been seriously one of the most significant places for me forming a sense of my own identity and my relationship with God that is apart from all the communities and the organizations that I've been with. And I deeply, deeply believe in community. And I so have valued, you know, time and community and the organizations that I've worked in. But having a space apart and outside of those places, all the all the voices, the, the being steeped in culture of those places, it's given me a space outside of that to recognize that I have it in me to discern God's voice and 
discern God's presence with me um, that is outside of Mm. that space and that God values me outside of those spaces. You know, I think that's a word for a lot of folks who, who are listening, who when we even talk about spiritual formation or this, even if as you read the title on this podcast, it could feel really triggering because a lot of spiritual formation is what you're describing. It ends up looking yeah. like this communal or culturally driven thing that actually avoids the core parts of who we are and how God wants to interact with us. And so mm-hmm. I just want to name the thing that you're describing may not actually feel like a reality that's possible for a lot of people who have been so entrenched in religious institutions and organizations. And so I just really appreciate your description of, of that and think that that will probably resonate with folks along the way. Yeah. Well, it's been, it's been huge for me and, and it's what enabled me, I think, to stay in communities because I had a separate sense of self and, and my identity with God was, could be apart from that. And that that sense of self is inherently good and not something that has to be sacrificed for the sake of the common or the cultural collective in some way. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're going to talk today about spiritual formation. And I think that as we talk about reclaiming our theology from white supremacy, there are lots of ways that white supremacy has deformed us and has actually made a lot of us feel kind of allergic to the notion of spiritual formation or of being formed. Things like Mm -hmm. prayer or worship or church are all things that are associated with coercion and manipulation and triggers. And we actually haven't figured out how to reclaim our theology from white supremacy or to reclaim even a concept of spiritual formation from white supremacy. And so as we have this conversation, that's what we're going to dive into some. But as we do that, I think that because many of us have been deformed by our spiritual communities, can you help us understand what is spiritual formation and how do we do it, learn it, practice it? Sure. Yeah. So I would define spiritual formation as the process in which we come to experience who God is and who we are more fully in the context of that relationship with God. So I think in more Christian language, people often say it's the process of becoming more like Christ, which is true. But I think that that needs a lot more interpretation for that to be helpful, because I think, like you said, people interpret that to mean there's a lot of myself that needs to be gotten rid of in order to be more like Mm -hmm. Christ, or that's what's been communicated to us or taught. So, and then I think of this, the process of spiritual formation, I think of it like a cycle that in any stage of life, we have a particular image of how we see God and an image of how we see ourselves. And then we encounter something, just kind of the everyday stuff of life. And that encounter forces us to ask questions about ourselves or about God or the world. And it it might be a tragedy. It might be um, a book or a sermon that got us thinking about something we never thought about before. It might be just a big decision that we need to make or disappointment that we're dealing with. Just again, just the substance of our life that, that creates this encounter for us where we ask these questions and where we have to wrestle with God, trying to make sense of kind of this new territory that we've never been in before. So if out of this wrestling, we come to a place where we can, we, can, we can and we want to surrender and trust God in this unknown territory, then the last part of that cycle is where we actually experience both a fuller image of who God is and, and we live into a fuller freedom in who we are. Both are expanded for us. And that spiritual formation, I mean, is like hundreds and hundreds of cycles over our lifetime, some really big, some small, um, but that's how I would describe it. Which, which I don't think I've ever heard in church. So I don't think it's something we talk about in church that way. Yeah, and I think you're right, because so much of what I heard growing up, at least, was that spiritual formation was, like you said, becoming like Christ. But being becoming like Christ was replicating. That word we used all the time was replicating Christ. And yes. replicating Christ was always modeled through a typically male, typically white, typically cis, almost always straight yes. person who... It was essentially them saying, I heard this phrase a long time ago that was like, follow me as I follow Jesus. And I think there's a way that Mm -hmm. like white men have been the people who have most said, follow me authoritatively as I follow Jesus. And so we actually have to, especially people of marginalized identities, are forced to strip ourselves of anything that is not white male practices of Christianity. And it makes us seem less like Jesus. And so I think there's ways that that process that you're describing feels like it actually makes room for us to exist in it. And you used one word that I'd love for you to describe a little bit more, because I imagine that for a lot of people, we just don't know what it means. You describe sure. in this God process, uh, the idea of surrendering. Tell me what you mean mm-hmm. when you when you say surrender in this process of spiritual formation. 
Yeah, and I realize that that can also be a really triggering word for a lot of people because surrender sounds like a giving up of your life and a giving up of yourself. And that's what has been asked of us, I think, in a lot of Christian spaces. When I say surrender, it is, it is, it is a choosing to say, I, I let go of the control that I have in this process. And I trust that God is initiating, moving, doing the bulk work of this process. And my role is actually to let go and let God do that thing. And the surrendering isn't a letting go of my, my being or my identity. It's letting go of control. That's really helpful. Because I think that many of us, when we hear surrender, it's like, it's in these big altar call moments, these emotionally driven, creatively manufactured moments where we're like, surrender to Jesus. And that means giving all of who you are, all of your money, all of your allegiance to this Mm -hmm. thing that's happening in the front, not necessarily to not needing to be in control of the process. And I think that the, the process of surrender that you're describing is less giving up ourselves and more having the freedom to be fully ourselves and to trust that God is doing a good work in the midst of us doing that. Yes. And I think it's significant that the surrender, the invitation to surrender is from God, not by somebody else. It's not someone else asking me to surrender something that they think I need to surrender. It is, it is God inviting me to surrender in this relationship, in this context where I, I am beloved by God, where God has my has my thriving in mind and and that it's a safe place to surrender and that that's that feels like a significant counter narrative especially as we enter into the lenten season soon to this idea that god wants us to suffer to be more holy like i think there's a way that especially western christianity that imparts a lot of suffering normalizes that suffering by using jesus as a model and so i think there's lots of ways that what you're describing is actually oh no this isn't god wanting you to suffer necessarily it is this rather this process of us experiencing life as human people and knowing that God is somewhere along the way with us, even when we don't necessarily understand. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about whiteness and white supremacy, Um, because I think that there are so many ways that spiritual formation has been hijacked by white supremacy and really Mm -hmm. the kind of circus, like (laughs) the word I want to use is like circusify. It's not a word, but like this kind of, pomp and circumstance Christianity that somehow is supposed to form something in us. And it does. White supremacy, Jesus does form something in us. But before we get there, I'd love for you to maybe just help us understand how has white supremacy influenced our spiritual formation and hindered that process for us? What what does that look like? Yeah. Um, You know, this is where listening to your first season of this podcast was so helpful for me because Honestly, I was seeing so many similar themes in common with directees that I meet with them. They are predominantly um, by POCs. So I am, am, was experiencing all these common themes. And it was so helpful in your podcast for you to name those particular values. So I, there's a few of them I want to point out just to talk more. About. So that the value of perfectionism, the white value of perfectionism has, I think, definitely shaped what we think spiritual formation is and how we get there. Mm. That it's about doing and knowing the right thing. It's behaving a certain way, which actually mostly what that forms in us is fear and anxiety mm. because our image of God becomes a God who's waiting for us to fail. It's, it's an image of God who doesn't understand our humanity and a God whose love and approval we, have, we continue to earn, even if we know in our mind God loves us unconditionally. But the white value of perfectionism what we believe and how we act do not line up. It's focused on what we do rather than the work of God in us. Yeah. I just think, yeah, I think as I hear you say that, it it points out this, this sense or the sentiment that, I don't even know how to say this well. What you're describing is that there can be something that we know in our mind that is de- to know, <laughs> there's something that we can know in our mind is destructive or harmful or deforming us somehow but the nature of white supremacy seeming inherent and natural and good means that there can be things that are formed in us that we can be consciously aware of but that still produce bodily triggers and anxiety that drive us despite our minds knowing better than the thing that we're living out yes yes 
Absolutely. And you know, and I don't, I, I don't know where that knowing is. I, you know, you say mind, but I think, I think a lot of the perfectionism is actually in our mind. And I wonder if the knowing is somewhere in our body, in our, in our spirit, in our heart that goes, I, I feel, I feel something, or I even feel unable to do something, but my mind is going to overpower my body and, and make me do it anyways, even though I'm scared, even though I feel inadequate, I'm going to do it anyways, because that is what it means to be, to be perfect and to be acceptable. Oof. And that feels helpful in terms of framing, because I think that that white supremacist value of objectivity can probably drive that mental process that you're talking about in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. So I think like connected, I mean, I think these are all very connected, but um, again, one of your podcasts was about worship of the written word. And, you know, in the spiritual director world, we, we talk about God as God is a self-communicating God and scripture describes numerous ways that God speaks and expresses God's presence. And yet we focus on the written word over our experiences in everyday life. But you see in scripture that God speaks through dreams, through other people around us, through nature, through silence through reflection, through our imagination, through art. And I love scripture. I'm not trying to devalue it, but there are big gaps in our spiritual formation on hearing and knowing and trusting the voice of God outside of scripture. We are, we are not taught to trust it. We don't trust it. How do you think, I know this is like jumping the gun a little bit, but how do you, how sure. would you, how do you think that we do that? Like, how do you go from being people who only know the Bible as it's like the only word of God, the most powerful it's the father the son and the holy bible so we've got patriarchy and worship of the written word all in this kind of quippy statement so if we're trying to unlearn this how do mm -hmm. we learn to trust our experiences or how does that counter the white supremacist narratives that we're taught yeah i mean i, I we could talk about this more later too but but my basic things are and and i even in my sessions with directees, because they, they totally want to have that three-minute quiet time where they're reading scripture. They want to kind of follow the norms of, you know, well, what book should I read? And what I say all the time is, you got to listen and you got to reflect. Mm -hmm. What's already been happening in your life, in your day-to-day, -day, because God is in the day-to-day. -day. So a, a simple prayer practice is the prayer of examine. And I love that practice because it is literally just reflecting on your day, your week, your month, your year. You can take any period of time. And it is asking questions to help you think about where did you experience God? Where did you experience life? What was life giving to you? What brought you joy? What, what freed you up to love? And then the opposite, asking the opposite questions. What brought you dissonance? What made you feel far from God? Where did you feel life draining? Mm for you. And as you ask those questions and look at your life and reflect on it, you just start to see patterns. You start to see patterns of the things that bring you life. You should do more of those things. Mm -hmm. Or you start to see patterns of the places that really bring desolation to you. And those are things to bring to God. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they expose relationships and places that are toxic that maybe you should move away from. But again, all those things, it's just the fodder of our life to reflect on and to bring. And, and one person describes the examine as reading the scripture of your life. Ooh. It's right. Yeah. It's believing that God is writing our story. God is in our story and a part of it. And so if we stop to pay attention and look at what God is already saying and doing and speaking over our life, um, we should be listening to that and giving it the attention that it deserves in the same way that we would be attentive to scripture and kind of, you know, where we hone in on scripture and pull it apart and ask questions and dive deeply into it, we should do that with our own lives because it's all there. I really love that because there's a way that honoring the experience of our own lives or the our expression of how we, yeah, yeah, honoring the experience of our own lives actually gives us a higher view of God's ability to speak a broader view of who God is and a bigger picture of God. Yes rather than this truncated view of God that can only be known in the Bible, which actually makes God small, which feels ironic because many mm -hmm. of us have been taught that that small view of God is the best view of God, the most right, the most true view of God. And we sacrifice yeah. all of ourselves and our personal identities and being and our even our collective and communal well-being, especially for marginalized folks, on the altar of this small vision of God that we can find in written text. And it doesn't just limit our 
experience and our image of God, it also limits our our experience of ourselves and knowing and knowing who we are, knowing who God is for us and who we are for God. It limits that. Yeah, and I see that playing out in a lot of well, I mean, I keep seeing all of these major leadership downfalls from evangelical, really, frankly, it's middle, it's, it's middle age to older, mostly white, except for Robbie Zacharias now, which is, you know, all that was really tough for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Pastors and preachers who seem to have this high intellectual view of God, but clearly a sense of self that can't make sense of that high view of God that they have, because it doesn't impact their lives at all. And so it feels like if they would actually look at the scripture of your reading the scripture of your life if you're reading Mm -hmm. the scripture of their lives if they're reading the scripture of their lives then they actually would get a different sense of who god is that would fall outside of these really oppressive structures that seek to preserve them at all costs in the name of preserving god's name at all costs it's a lot yeah yeah and i think that that connects to this to this next thing i want to talk about which is the the way that white values have infiltrated our formation is how disembodied our faith is, right? So formation as we're usually taught it is so much about what you know, it's what you read, it's what you learn, study, it's what you heard at church, in the sermons. It's focused on your mind. It's control your thoughts. You know, know what is true and that's, that's got to be enough. And there's this huge gap regarding paying attention to what you feel, what you desire, which both are not don't just show up in your emotional life but they show up in your physical bodies right what you feel what you desire shows up physically and we're mostly taught in the white evangelical church that what we feel and desire are sin yes and not to be trusted right and so what you're describing when leadership falls and fails it's their faith was really disembodied Mm. they knew what was true they they and that seemed like that should have been spiritually forming for them and yet their bodies were doing, desiring, feeling other things that they did not address because what they tried to do was just shove it away. And so as opposed to feelings and desires are actually ways that God created us to discern and experience God's presence and voice with us. Um, So I'm not saying that all of our feelings and desires are from God, but there is freedom to bring all those feelings and desires to the surface. And that's what's missing. We're taught to shove it away and not to look at them. But when we bring them all to the surface, we can hear what they're trying to tell us and to discern them with a God who loves us and who welcomes them. So our feelings and desires have the ability to point us and lead us in the direction that brings us closer to God and to reveal kind of our true created being. Because I truly believe that when we're becoming who God has created us to be in the world, it's going to be, we'll, we're going to be doing and becoming someone that we love. And so you have to feel a sense of desire for that, right? To, to know what that is, you've got to desire that. On the other hand, I think our feelings and desires can also be our ego trying to get control of our mm. life, right? But even in that, it's good for us to, for that to come to the surface and to know that because we're, we're having those thoughts and feelings and desires because we're feeling scared or we're feeling out of control of our life and we're looking for a way to deal with that. So even that, we need God in that place as well. And a disembodied faith just forms in us this image of ourselves that we're, we're someone to detest, we're to hate ourselves mm. for being kind of untrustworthy. Yeah, and I think the, the scripture that goes along with that kind of disembodied ideology is that Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 17, like the heart is deceitful above all things, who can understand it? Yes. It's, he is greater than I, it's I, I must decrease, he must increase. It's the like, you need to basically mutilate your flesh into submission so that you can trash yes. compactor down all of your thoughts and experiences in favor of this more pure kind of spirituality. And that that is what it looks like to look like Christ rather than to become more ourselves as Christ became more himself in order mm-hmm. to live as fully human people. And so I think you're right in that disembodiment. Yeah. In that disembodiment. Well, it does a lot of things, but one of the things you described was that it keeps us from recognizing how our ego impacts us. And our ego is not immune from white supremacy, but when we don't know that our ego is shaping us and when we're taught by leaders who are pretty obviously living out of their egos, I think it further disembodies us because it normalizes something while giving us a cognitive dissonance about what that thing is. Like that person leads out of their ego. I know that, but I can't say anything about that because they're authoritative and because I'm just this horrible, sinful person that, oh, how could God love me? And so I think the theology behind all of that is pretty sick. 
Right. Yeah. And if you don't have an awareness of your ego at work, your ego just gives you this sense of control. And so it's really tempting to spiritualize your ego because it feels like you're in control of, of your life and you're in control of what's happening spiritually. Mm. What might spiritualizing our ego sound like? I think it would be rationalizing why a person in leadership needs control over something, right? Controlling over systems, controlling over whatever. Or, you know, I think about the lack of accountability for a lot of people in leadership that your ego would say, you don't need that. You're fine. You know what's true. Um, You've got it under control. So you don't need to be examined in that way or for people to, um, to know all these parts of you. I don't know. That's just off the top of my head. But I just think it's a false sense of control and not needing help. Mm. Yeah. And that ego in that way forms independence that pulls us from structures that can actually, through dependence, help us see more of who we are in and through other people. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, another way that I think the ego kind of tricks us is saying, is just causing us to be so afraid of shame or the thing that is going to be lost, right? Whether that's our, our, um, our integrity, our um, fearing losing kind of our position, um, whatever power that we have, it deeply makes us afraid of losing those things. And so you cannot be transparent in the ways that your soul really needs to be with God because you've got to maintain control. Yeah. And that many of us learn to do that by hiding and yes. thus, and we think that yeah. we're just hiding from other people. But I think over time, what yeah. ends up happening is that we hide from God, we hide from others, and then suddenly we don't recognize ourselves anymore because we've hidden so much and reshaped and contorted ourselves so much that we don't actually know ourselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, thinking and thinking about that, the again, the being disembodied and basically kind of being taught to to hate ourselves or to not trust ourselves. The the real process of spiritual formation, I think what's striking to me is it actually really involves loving ourselves. And I have never heard a sermon on loving myself. Have you? Maybe one. I, have, I mean, I have never, unless I was the one preaching, I have never heard someone preach about the significance of learning to love who you are because I think we're so afraid that when we say that, it means being selfish, mm. being navel gazing, kind of all of those things. And yet scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we always focus on the, well, of course you know how to love yourself, So love, but love your neighbor like that. But I think actually we haven't been taught to love and respect and accept ourselves fully. And so it's no wonder that we don't know how to love and respect others fully. And then in terms of our image of God around that, then how can we experience a God who calls us beloved if we're taught that most of who we are is not lovable? And then how can we expect to do all the nice Christian things for other people that we say we're doing if we can't even receive that love for ourselves. Yeah. And so we don't, we don't, we do them, but not very freely. Mm. Dang. Yeah. And I think that that hits a really interesting snag in a lot of progressive Christian space where we, we, we turn a little bit toward humanitarianism or like just trying to do the right stuff, be progressive enough, be liberal enough to help other people, but we still don't actually examine the things that we hated about evangelicalism or the structures that harmed us. We just actually repurpose the same self-hating ideology, but then we call it liberation and freedom. And so I think I have some concerns about progressive faith systems that repackage the same tools instead of being like, okay, we don't just like, just accepting all things ideologically does not mean we actually love ourselves more. Saying you're liberated and being liberated are different things. Saying that you love yourself and loving yourself are really different things. And because we've been taught cognitive dissonance as a form of spirituality, it's really easy to just jump into the groove of those things and find along the way that we just don't know what we think, who we are, what we want, what's good for us, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Yikes. Right. Again, because information is not formation. Mm. Just learning new information and taking in new information doesn't equate to, to spiritual formation in you. And you can tell me what you think about this, because this is something I'm trying on. But I really think that whiteness values talking, knowing, proving. It wants to form people with words and kind of spouting information, that that's the way that you change people is with your words. And if they just knew what was true, that that would 
that that would change them. Yeah, that the knowing is formation versus the listening and experiencing. And we're not taught to listen. We are not taught to listen deeply to God, to ourselves, or to each other. A book I was reading recently on spiritual direction um, by Sue Pickering says, to listen another soul into a condition of disclosure and discovery may be almost the greatest service that any human being ever performs when another. One can listen someone into existence. I almost cried when I read that because the reality of that felt so true that one can listen someone into existence. It seems like such a simple service that would create, that would give people life. And I see this happen all the time in spiritual direction that as people talk, it's like they're hearing themselves for the, for the first time. And slowly you see confidence and clarity mm-hmm. come. And from that place, then they can hear from God. The confusion comes when they start listening and thinking about all the other voices that have been telling them what to think and what to do for so long. Mm, yeah. And so it's really beautiful to witness people becoming just because someone is listening to mm. them and giving them that space. Ugh, that's so important. And I think that you're right. I think that there is a way that whiteness so values. Uh, I actually I actually did an episode that's coming out next week with Barnabas Lynn uh, on banking models of theology, which is just essentially the, the process of us, of Western theology specifically and Western education, valuing depositing information in people and then withdrawing it at the right time and calling that being or calling that wholeness mm, or calling yes. that some kind of higher humanity in some way. And so I think that you're right. I think there's a way wow. that yeah. if we bank information in people and if we we deposit, we deposit, we deposit, and then we withdraw at a certain point, but we never teach people about their own experiences or not even about their own experiences, but how to, again, read the scripture of their lives. If we don't teach mm-hmm. people how to do that or even at the basic level, acknowledge that that is a good, helpful, and necessary thing, then all we do is create a way of knowing, an epistemology or a way of being that is about ingesting more and more information that I might project that I am whole and better and therefore erasing myself and Christ overcoming me. And I think it becomes incredibly challenging and destructive, especially in the downfall of all of these religious leaders because we find that the input that we've received, like I was reading something about a guy who listened to every Mark Driscoll sermon. Oh, goodness. And I was like, oh, and then Mark Driscoll turns out to be a total ass. And uh, I shouldn't dehumanize people, but he's a horrible person. <laughs> and he, this guy has been formed by every word Mark Driscoll said over 10 years. Yeah. And then has to have that all withdrawn from him somehow all at once because that person was a liar and a fraud and a deviant. And so I think that there's ways that that model of education or model of knowing keeps toxic people in power by making them authoritative inputs that tell us who we should be. And if we cannot say the right thing, then we're put on the outside. And I think that that is true with how we are taught and practice theology. Yeah, absolutely. Because if it's true that one can listen someone into existence, you know that the opposite is true. We experience that all the time. How often have we spoken someone out of existence by our words, diminishing their existence? And we see that, you know, on a systemic level with racism, sexism, all the isms. But it is also very pervasive in our church communities. It's, it is, it is, it is really tragic. Um, I think about my daughter, Promise, who right now as a five-year-old is grieving intensely because she's processing her, her adoption trauma. So her grieving looks a lot like yelling and is super angry saying things like, I hate this family. I don't want to be here anymore. You don't love me. Just screaming at the top of her lungs. She's so angry. And it is so hard for me as her mother to hear it. But what I think is so amazing is that when I listen and reflect back what I'm hearing her say, and I literally am just reflecting it back and I say, you hate this family. You feel like I don't love you. She physically draws near to me as if I just said the most consoling thing to her. Her whole body relaxes. She's even said to me, thank you, mommy. That made me feel better. Mm. But 
But if I correct her or try to tell her what is true, even really gently, like mommy does love you, she literally moves away from me and it sends her straight back into crying. My five-year-old knows when she is being heard and loved and received as herself. And she knows when she is being silenced. It is visceral and it is instinctive in her. And I believe that we know that too, but we have just gotten really used to it. Or no one has listened deeply to us. And so we really guard ourselves. Yes. And I think the thing I would add too is that I think that happens because we don't know for many of us what it's like to feel respected. Yeah. And I think that part of being heard is to be respected and to be honored in what we're bringing. And I think because so much of our faith experiences teach us to disrespect ourselves and to disrespect others through control and power and correcting and apologetics. Like the thing that you're describing with promise feels like so, so visceral. And I'm like, yeah, and we can be, and we can go, I think there's probably a lot of people like, oh my gosh, that's so challenging and so beautiful. But I don't know that a lot of us maybe recognize that, because I know, I think for me, I'm processing in real time that when I'm like to a pastor or to, I'll say it this way, a story comes to mind where I was working for a campus ministry, I was fundraising, and I had a church that I had gone to as a high schooler who had been highly supportive of me, and they financially supported the ministry for a really long time. And when they found out after Black Lives Matter started that I was starting a Black student Bible study specifically, oh God, how terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They called me and had said that they had sent my articles around to the entire elder board and that they just couldn't support me anymore. And nothing about my ministry had changed, but what had happened was that they no longer respected the way in which I was doing it. And so they exerted control Mm -hmm. over this place where they disrespected me and punished me by withdrawing their funds. And so I think that there's ways that a lot of us, when we're not taught to listen or to have conversations about things that we don't understand or to be with people and just let people express things and work things out along the way, the natural result is paternalism, control, punishment, reframing narratives and blaming others rather than actually turning inwardly on ourselves and asking the question, what is it in me that is experiencing this so viscerally? What in me cannot hear what this person is saying without rejecting Mm -hmm. it outright? And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we just make that about, oh, I know the truth and the Holy Spirit is in me telling me to reject this person when really so much of that is culturally formed. Exactly. Exactly. It's just about saying what is true. That's not true. I mean, and it takes everything in me towards my daughter to not be like, that's not true. (laughs) I do love you. Right? Like everything she's saying in me, it for me is so hard to hear because all I can think is that's not true at all. And I know that you want to be in this family. I know you want to be here, but I can't say that. It does not help her to heal, nor does it produce any good fruit to correct her in that way. Now, later when she's calm and when she's, when she's, you know, more at peace, she can come and say to me, mommy, I just, my feelings were just hurt or mommy, I was just feeling jealous. She knows, you know, as a five-year-old, she, she knows what is probably true, Mm -hmm. but she has to express what she's feeling. And she needs me to know that it's okay. And that I can hold that with her. She needs to know that it's okay. She feels like she hates this family sometimes. And then I can say, that's okay. I understand. And that if you practice defensiveness, when she's trying to practice authenticity, she will never know that she can be her authentic self, which is what I think a lot of us as adult people have internalized, that if we are our authentic selves, then other people will become defensive and we will become less than in their eyes somehow because they can't hear the truth about themselves. Exactly. And that's what makes it so difficult for us to be transparent and authentic with God, which is so significant. And, and a lot of times we don't even know why. A lot of people ask me, why does it matter what I feel and that I tell God? They just don't even know, but it matters because this is how relationship is formed is that we can bring our full authentic self and know that we are completely embraced, completely accepted, and that God wants to meet us in that place. Mm. And I wonder if we believed that, how that would transform our interpersonal relationships. Like if we had a relationship where we knew that we were known and seen and loved and then we gave that away to other people as we've experienced it from God, I wonder what that would do. Oh, it would be so amazing. I think just, I think even just being, 
being able to accept ourselves because God accepts us would allow us to accept and embrace people around us in a way that I think that would feel miraculous to most people. Yeah, it just feels like this kind of spiritual deformation that we've experienced has really cost us our sense of self. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty brutal in a lot of ways. And so as we talk about spiritual formation, we've mentioned some that there's this very white-centered, male-centered influence on our spiritual formation. And you're a spiritual director. And when I think about spiritual direction, I will be honest, I think about like 60-year-old white lady who owns a retreat center in the <laughs> woods. And it in all the books I think of, like, bless her, and I love her work, like, is like Ruth Haley Barton feels like kind of the quintessential spiritual director, like, archetype right. for me. And so as I think right. about spiritual direction and really the inherent whiteness in it, I feel concerned and troubled. And so I'm wondering, as a spiritual director, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Why the hell are all of these spiritual directors in this particular category of folks? And what does that do? Yes. I mean, okay, I, I don't fully know yet. I think I'm still figuring this out. I mean, you know, I'd have to go through the whole like history of, you know, Christianity and the contemplative world and how that got formed and where that got shaped. And I just, I can't even, I can't go there because I just don't know it all. So what I can say is spiritual direction in its current form is still something that's fairly new to evangelicalism in, and in mainstream churches. I mean, it's, I still would say if you asked most people what spiritual direction was, they would have no idea what you're talking about. And it's true. All the literature teaching training for spiritual direction is primarily white. So I have friends who are by POC spiritual directors, and we have been searching for training and influences by people of color, and we're coming up empty-handed. I mean, there's just like a smattering, just hardly anything. And I don't know what to say about this, except I guess I shouldn't be surprised, you know? <laughs> but what's helpful, what's helpful for me at this point is that the practice of spiritual direction is pretty countercultural itself to mainstream evangelicalism. So the books that I've read, even though they're written by white people, the things they're talking about are pretty countercultural. It is about loving yourself. It is about listening to your experiences. It is about these things that we're talking about. And the practice of spiritual direction is the main role is to listen and to walk with. So there's not like a passing on of information, right? They're, you're not teaching. It's not in a teaching role. And so I think that there's some, oh, I don't know what to say, a kind of a safe, a bit of a safe cushion, right, in that. But there are some limitations when it comes to walking, I think, with marginalized people and by POCs. So it's a problem. I mean, <laughs> so it's a problem. Um, and I think because it's just now entering mainstream a little bit, I do think that we're going to see the influences and the the teaching and the wisdom of BIPOCs. We're going to see that grow. But really, I've had to rely on my past experiences and my own spiritual formation around working cross-culturally, dealing with ethnic identity and racism to make space for my directees to bring who all of who they are to spiritual direction. And it's significant to me that they have that freedom because... A lot of people of color haven't experienced or been aware of God being present in these specific parts of their life. It's just, it's just an injustice that they live with, and it's something separate from their spiritual life. Mm. I mean, it's already so rarely addressed in Christian spaces, um, but there really is just no training in this arena. So some of the freedom for my directees, well, and I should ask you this question, but some of the freedom for my directees comes because I'm not white, and they know that I have some experience in this arena. But there are also questions that I ask specifically in regards to racial dynamics or their ethnic identity in their life because they may be afraid to bring it up or it just doesn't occur to them that that's actually a dynamic that is at play as they're, as they're talking about things in their life. But you can see it on their faces that when I name it or bring it up as a question, there is this huge sense of relief like, oh, yes, that, that is happening and I get to bring this part of myself to this conversation in a way that no other space lets me do. Mm. So it's not to say that a white person could not walk with someone of color, because actually my spiritual director is a white woman who I deeply appreciated, but it works because of who I am and who she is, mm -hmm. that it's been safe for me. I've already been given a lot of language and have done a lot of work on my own life around this. And so I know how to talk about it in regards to my faith. That's not gonna be the case for most bi POCs. So it really impacts 
accessibility to buy POCs and receiving spiritual direction. One, because it's difficult to find a spiritual director of color, which I think, again, is critical in creating a safe space to explore and to bring all of who you are. But two, most POCs come from cultures that do not value talking about yourself, right? We're, yeah. we're raised in, in communal values that you're, you're, you're concerned about the well-being of the community, not, not your own. And so the idea of talking to someone one-on-one about your feelings or your relationship with God is a huge barrier for people. And it needs some cultural translation and permission to kind of, to move through that barrier. Um, which again, if you are not trained cross-culturally in that way, it would be really challenging um, for that person to feel like they could bring that. Well, I imagine that would be true across the board, but that's been true for me in my own spiritual direction. I'm sorry, I didn't mention that you are my spiritual director. People can know that. That's <laughs> Okay, I was No, no, sure. no. We can talk all you want about my spiritual direction. That's fine. I have no sense of confidentiality around any of that at this point. So full permission to say what that's you want. What makes us, that's what makes this conversation so funny is that usually I, you're, I'm the one asking questions and I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> and now the roles are reversed where you're asking these questions and I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to. <laughs> well, that's how I felt talking about my feelings for three years. So here we are. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the things that I'm that comes to mind is that when our spiritual formation is done outside of our identities, and then we have to mm-hmm. live our lives as marginalized people. So I'll talk about race specifically, but when as a black woman, I live yeah. code switching all the time and trying to perform mm-hmm. whiteness to survive, then I might not even know what my real feelings are because I'm in survival mode or because I'm trying to exist in a space that doesn't want my survival to be a thing exactly or i experience or understand justice in abstraction or on a structural level but i don't actually have the capacity or space or influence to say what does it mean that i'm black like what does it mean that i'm black and what does it mean to god that i'm black and what does that mean outside of oppression like what does that mean beyond black men being killed by the police and black folks being demonized in the culture like what does my blackness mean outside of those things? And I think that mm-hmm. because we're always dealing with the next traumatic injustice structurally, it can yeah. be nearly impossible to actually do the ethnic identity development that could happen in spiritual formation that would allow us mm-hmm. to bring our full selves to this relationship with God that you're describing. And I think yeah. that is compounded by this use of scripture that is like, there is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or whatever. We're all just like one. And if we just get rid of distinction somehow we will be better because we'll have abstracted unity and so i think for the journey for me in spiritual direction at least has been a reassociating with myself like i've been taught to dissociate and a lot of it has been reassociating with myself with the core of who i am trusting myself and my gut and figuring out what that looks like and i just think that a lot of people don't have the opportunity in their spiritual formation, nor maybe in the spiritual direction or even therapy that they receive to be able to do that because you have to strip away so many layers of white supremacy to even get to that like soft core that might be ourselves. Yes, yes, exactly. I I was meeting with a directee who is in the process of a lot of deconstruction and she came to the session so in her head. And when we went to pray, she just, it was like she already knew. She, you know, you could see it on her face. Like, I already know what God thinks about this. Or I already know how God is going to respond to me because of what she's been taught, because of what's stored up in her mind, right? But when she went to prayer and to listen, she came up out of that time crying. And she said, Ellen, God showed me that God was a black woman for me. Mm-hmm. And that immediately allowed me to feel so comforted by God in a way that I didn't know I could be comforted by God in, in the tragedy and in the constant violence that she's seeing in the news done to bodies that look like hers. And that was just such a beautiful, significant moment that I think a lot of people don't, don't have someone asking them that question. Who is God for you as a black woman or as a Chinese American woman? Or as a Latino woman, who is God for you Mm. specifically? And that feels like this great untangling from white supremacy or this like white male God that teaches us that we cannot Mm -hmm. be fully ourselves and be accepted at the same time. Like that that makes sense why we would be disembodied. And for whom we would not feel safe coming to a white male God 
authority figure, right? And so mm-hmm. how can we enter into prayer and bring our full selves when we don't feel safe? And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Like I even think about people, like I think about this probably affects white men in really significant ways who have really significant father wounds. And then we're only taught to pray to yes. God as father. And then our father yeah. is abusive. And so we see God as abusive. And so I think that the limitation of this obsession with white male God, bearded figure, Kenny Loggins, Jesus prevents us from having any kind of safety with God. And then we experience so much unsafe stuff. (laughs) I don't even have the right words. We experience so much danger, really, or violence in our religious spaces that we're taught that religious people who trust God can't be trusted. And therefore, God, who looks like our religious figures, cannot be trusted. I myself can't be trusted because my heart is deceitful above all things. Therefore, there is no trust in the world. No, no. And that's why people ditch their faith and they ditch God. You bring up one, the the paternalism, right? The patriarchy that, that again, I, I find so pervasive when I'm meeting with people, um, this idea that there is an authority, that someone else, someone else is the authority on what it means for me to be faithful and, um, and to do the right thing and, and what to believe. And that authority is typically a white man. And that translates into this relationship where, where we don't feel like we have agency with God in our choices in our decisions, because someone else needs to, I can't trust myself. Someone else needs to make those decisions for me and tell me we're inadequate to experience and know God for ourselves. And so, like you said, where do we go if that person fails and falls and we are not taught to trust, to trust ourselves that God is in us, then what do we do? But but in that space of spiritual formation, part of that process is is trusting that God is in you. The dignity of that. There is dignity that I see that comes to people in spiritual direction when they start to realize that they have it in themselves to hear from God, to trust their own discernment, and to feel peace about that. It's, it is dignity that has been stripped away. Well, I think that dignity gets stripped away in a success-failure binary that we apply to our spiritual formation. And if we live in a success-failure binary, then we can never just be or exist. And so much of spiritual formation and spiritual direction really is, how do we make space to exist as ourselves and let that shape who we are becoming and who we are? And so I I just hear that stripping Mm -hmm. of self that comes in this spiritual deformation shaped by these values of whiteness. So... What do we do about that? Like, how do we untangle ourselves from white values in our spirituality? How do, what do we do? So, I mean, again, I come back to, to listening and reflecting. And, and I don't, I don't mean that by yourself. Like find, find places with people that you trust where, space is held for you to listen to yourself and listen to God. And I'd recommend again, that if you are in a predominantly white evangelical space, that it be outside of your church leadership or your organization, um, so that you can feel as free as possible. Um, and that can be, again, that can be a group of friends that can be with a spiritual director that holds space for you to listen, but it's spaces where it, it is void of advice giving and um you know we're taught in small groups at church just how to share with each other and just tell people kind of what's already happening but but rarely is there a space where we're actively kind of just holding that space for someone to listen to god and to listen to ourselves talk so find that space find a group of people if you don't have a spiritual director and can't find one of color where there's that space to listen because as you listen to yourself you're going to grow that awareness of what's actually happening in you, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling towards God without silencing yourself, right? Because if you stay in your head and you do this on your own, you're going to silence yourself by telling yourself, but I know what's true about God. And there's not that freedom to really express what it is that you're feeling towards God in this moment, in this suffering, in this pain, letting God know how angry you are, how pissed off you are. Um, God can really handle that. Yeah, that God is not too fragile to engage with your feelings or your no. whole self. That God is not no. offended by our 
feelings or our experiences. Like that God is not so fragile. God is not as fragile as our leaders. Like at the end of the day, I feel like that we just need no. to know that. That the fragility yes. of our leaders and the control and paternalism of our leaders is not something that God is doing or about. It is a structural and systemic failure of people who say they follow Jesus to act like Jesus. Yes. God does not need us to protect his hurt feelings or her hurt hurt feelings. And God does not God does not need us to um, decide what is faithful or unfaithful. That is not for us to decide. That is for God to decide what is faithful. Yes. And so when we come before God and say, well, it's not faithful for me to express how angry I am at God or my disbelief or my, my despair, um, that again is silencing yourself. And God's not asking you to do that. God's inviting you to bring all of that. So listen, find those spaces to listen and then reflect again, the prayer of examine, you can do a quick Google, but it's such a simple yet powerful way um, to pay attention to yourself and to pay attention to God. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it's seeing those patterns in your life of what brings you life, what gives you joy, where do you experience a closeness with God? And that's not always in church or in a quiet time that happens on, on a walk or on, when you go hiking or when you're skiing, like these, these daily activities that where you recognize, oh, I, I see the beauty of God and I feel God's pleasure with me as I enjoy playing with my, my kids or, or doing this art project. Um, it's those kinds of places that you're experiencing God every day, in the everyday, in the ordinary places. Yes. And that in that, it is okay and normal, good and necessary to be people who figure it out along the way. We don't know what works for us, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what helps us connect, what doesn't help us to connect, Mm -hmm. unless we try. And Mm -hmm. so much of spirituality can be so prescriptive and tell us what we need to do, what spiritual pill we need to take to be holy, when it's just not that simple. And so I think that there's Mm -hmm. ways that we need to free ourselves or be free in whatever way that we can be, even in small. I know there's a lot of this can feel like very overwhelming. So in small ways to figure it out. Uh, one of the things that we're doing in this Lent devotional that just came out is doing modified, I'm calling them like examine inspired reflections where we're doing ex- ecological examines and political examines and personal examines oh, and awesome. communal examines in order just to connect in ways that we may not know how to. And so I think part of spiritual formation is trying shit and figuring it out. It's trying things, yes. figuring it out. Yes, absolutely. And knowing that that God is in that with you. So it's okay to make mistakes and, and take a wrong turn. That's fine. God is with you in that. Yes. And if we don't believe that, that tells us what we believe about God. Like if we believe that our perfection is needed and that there's consequence for our lack of perfection, Mm -hmm. that tells Mm -hmm. us something about what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. And one thing that's been helpful for me, both in therapy and spiritual direction and in my own reflections is asking, Oh, where did I learn that? Because it's rarely the Bible. It's rarely an ex- it's rarely the Bible by itself. It's an experience that I had with somebody that I then reified by putting the Bible on top of a toxic experience that I had. True. That is so true. Yes. So I think it can just be worth asking, what do I believe about God? And where did I learn that? Who taught me that? Yeah. It, in which I think it can be really significant. Totally. And And again, I think it's just, it's being able to ask those questions without any judgment without judging, it's bringing your, your questions, your feelings, your thoughts without any judgment and holding them out to look at and trust that God is going to discern with you for your freedom's sake, that God wants your freedom yes. even more than you do. Yes. And that in that, I think it actually makes us much healthier people. Well, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. obviously it does. That feels like a stupid thing to say in this conversation, <laughs> but I think it makes us more healthy people in that honesty with ourselves actually helps us to manage and make real decisions around our impulses instead of being compulsive people driven by things that we've been taught to be driven by. And so I think that for me, yes, I can now go like, ooh, when I do this thing or when I think this thought or when I do this thing, that that's bringing up this other thing. And I can choose to do that or to not do that and to not feel like yeah. guilt or shame if I do or do not do a thing. And so I think that there's some ways yeah. that this posture is really freeing for us, not only in that it helps us to be liberated and free, but it helps us to actually know what's going on for us well enough to make more 
integrated decisions and embodied decisions for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Ellen, is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation? Anything that you feel like we need to know? Maybe, maybe it's just this. When I am meeting with directees, my heart is often exploding with love and delight and this desire for their freedom and all I can know of that in me is that how much more God desires that for each of us right that kind of that waiting with anticipation for the freedom that is to come for for God's children Mm. for God's beloved and when people get a glimpse of that when people get just that like that that one experience where they recognized how beloved they are I just I don't know I just think how much more does God live for that mm. and waits for that for us and so I think it is so it is deeply sad to me I think when people have been hurt by the church and by communities of faith and they don't have a place to go where they can Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Salvage, where they can salvage themselves and salvage God for them yeah. in that space. And so I think I just want to say, look for that, look for that space. It's, it's there. Yeah. You are worth yeah. that. And yeah, the only thing I would add is that I think one practice that's been really helpful for me that I don't do as much anymore, but was really helpful for me in the beginning of my deconstruction journey and my kind of coming to know myself journey was journaling. I didn't know how to be honest with myself or with others. And so I think in free writing, I was able to do that. So for a while, every morning I would get up and for 15 minutes, I would free write about what I thought were my feelings. Mostly I was describing my thoughts that I thought were feelings because I didn't even know. And making space just to hear myself because I think so many of us Mm -hmm. have so many voices dictating how we experience ourselves, God and others that we don't even know what our own voice sounds like. And so for me, journaling was a way to find what my voice is such that I could actually bring that to God and be transformed in those kind of miraculous spaces in a lot of ways that I couldn't be if I didn't know my own voice. And so I think for some folks, maybe journaling and just being honest with yourself could be a yes. really beautiful start. A group of people that have been notoriously white that I look to for this are actually Quakers and the ways that Quakers mm. conduct clearness committees. So if you haven't looked yes. up queer, queer, without queerness committees, <laughs> you know, if you can find a queerness committee too, that's great. Find yourself a queerness committee. Yeah. A clearness <laughs> committee that helps people to hear what they're saying um, without advice giving and actually helps people to learn to listen in community. And so if you haven't known about those and learned about those, I think that's another place to go. And I will say now that I made a little Freudian slip around queerness committees, I would say that this journey of spiritual formation for our queer siblings is distinctly painful in that your identities have been framed as sinful, as far from God, as Mm -hmm. unexplorable, as yeah, things that can be shaped or changed or converted from. And so I think that as I've done little bits of this kind of work with folks, there's a special tenderness that I extend to queer folks who are figuring out what it means to be them, what they like, what they don't like, what that means for sex and relationships and dating, whether they're romantic or aromantic, sexual or asexual, allosexual, right? All of those things matter. And I think that there's a specific pain that queer folks experience and a specific challenge in spiritual direction, in having non-affirming spiritual directors and folks like that. And so I just want to name that Mm -hmm. there's more nuance to this conversation than we've been able to have. And as we talk about white supremacy, I don't want to limit it to, I don't want to limit the intersections that that, that that hits. Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because definitely the LGBTQ community is another that has felt alienated from the church and and have found some, you know, if you can find a spiritual director who can be affirming and hold that space with you, I think it has, it's huge. Mm-hmm. I think it's huge and so significant. I'm trying to think of anything else. I, I Group spiritual direction is a thing, but again, finding a group, finding group spiritual direction one that's not predominantly white, but also one where you're not just joining a random, a random group of strangers, I think is challenging. And so one of the things I'm actually super excited to do when the pandemic ends, when I have my time and my life back from my children, <laughs> is, is actually to form um, group spiritual direction amongst friends. So you choose four or five people that you feel safe with 
that you want to journey with and learn how to group spiritual, do provide spiritual direction for one another. Mm. So learning how to give one another that silence, learning how to ask questions that are just clarifying for the person, not giving advice and holding that space to listen with them um, and to them as they discern what God is doing. And I think that is so largely missing from our experience of authentic community, that, that space to participate in one another's listening of God and discerning together versus, again, that small group model where people are just sharing and telling people what's going on in their life. But there is such a more involved way to walk with one another in this. And it doesn't have to just be with a spiritual director that you can do this with friends. And that's what I would love to do to kind of empower groups of people and friends to be able to do that with one another. Well, when you do that, let us know and we'll make sure that we let people know that you're doing that. Because what you're describing is that you're describing helping us be for each other as God is for us. Yes. And to me, if we can be for each other as God is for us, then that goes a really freaking long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you want to plug? Anything you've got coming up that you want the people to know about? Any social media that you're on? Just I have a website if you want to find out more about spiritual direction. Um, or myself. And if you're, if you're looking for a spiritual director of color, you know, I have a handful of networked places. And so please feel free to reach out to me. And if I cannot, if I don't have space to take on um, new directees, I can definitely point you in direction of some directees that I know and that I, um, that I trust. And so, um, yeah. Perfect. And what's your website? It is ellenlohoffman.com. Perfect. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for your time. So glad to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me, Brandy. It's a pleasure. So this episode's not quite over, but I'm going to say my last word so that Ellen can have the last word. So thank you for joining us. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review. But honestly, I just want you to hear what Ellen has to say, because I think it will actually help us to do a little better together as we deconstruct and figure things out along the way. For those of you who are in the midst of a difficult and dissonant season in your spiritual life, I want to just describe some of what the process of spiritual formation might feel like so that you can look for markers along the way as you walk in this uncharted territory and to know that you're not alone. So these seasons feel really disorienting, like you have little to stand on or like you are walking around in the dark because you can't see what's ahead. It can feel uncomfortable because things don't make sense the way that they used to, and it's slow. The work of God in us is really slow work. So it usually means a time of less activity on your part, not more. Even though you might find yourself striving and straining to kind of find the right things to do to make this process go faster, you're going to find it's not helpful. And so know that you're not in a wrong place. You are just in a process and this is God's work. It's not in your power to make something happen. So I just encourage you to slow down, make space for this season that you're in. Be gentle with yourself as God is really gentle with you and trust the process that God has you in. It is a season of waiting. You're waiting on God to do this important work inside of you. So pay attention to God's movement inside of you. Know that God's working very intentionally on your behalf, even while you're sleeping. And little by little, you'll start to notice an increase in freedom in you, more lightness, more peace, more awareness of God's presence with you. And when you do get to the other side, and the promise that there is another side, there's often a very tangible, deep experience of knowing God's love for you. And even though it feels slow to us while, while we're in the process, People are often really surprised at how much God has done in them and who they've become while they've done so very little. So I hope that you can take some hope and encouragement from that.